you're about to hear was originally recorded for the TrackSec podcast. You can find out more about the TrackSec podcast at www.tracksec.com. So listeners, and welcome to the TrackSec Security Podcast. Uh, my name's Aaron Finnan, and welcome to the show. Today we've got a, a, a very interesting show lined up. got a an interesting guest on. It'll be really nice to speak to him in a, in a little bit. Uh, I think we'd best off start off with a bit of track sec news, which is quite strange, seems as we're only on to the second episode. Uh, but we have a new host, um, Robert Ladyman. Um, Robert, why don't you introduce yourself to the, the track sec listeners? Okay, my name's uh, Robert Ladyman. I run a small auditing and software development company in Scotland. And we're joined also by uh, Tom McKenzie. How are you doing, Tom? Doing all right, thank you. Just uh, hanging on. <laughs> hanging on. What have you been up to? Yeah. Um, I've just started my own web series, um, Interview with the Black Cat. So I've been running around in Black Cat forums and IRC channels trying to get hold of some uh, Black Hats, I suppose. And um, also I've been trying to get my head around Sabayan or Sabion, as some people like to call it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> Linux, you don't you don't have to pronounce it to use it. <laughs> um, and I would I'm I'm very privileged to uh, uh, to to finish off Robert's joined TrackSec and and Ryan has um moved on to uh, it, it won't be joining us anymore as a as a host uh, but everyone at TrackSec uh wishes him the the best and certainly with DVWA and all the good things that are happening over there and uh so yeah uh, if you're listening Ryan thanks very much buddy um right so today's interview is we're in interviewing um someone who I've spoken to before I have a lot of a lot of respect for and it's very very nice of him to come on onto the call is the famous Pete Wood are you there Pete I am young man I am brilliant Pete could you introduce yourself to everyone please yeah, with pleasure. Yeah, my name's Peter Wood. I've been playing around with computers and electronics for the past 41 years, which is quite worrying. And um, I've been in the security side of the IT business for the last 20. I run a, a consultancy called First Base Technologies, which is an ethical hacking firm. Uh, we're the sort of guys who provide uh, unbiased, I hope, and uh, independent testing services. We don't sell anything and we don't uh, install anything except in order to break it. Um, I also run a group called whitehats.co.uk, which is uh, a vendor-independent user group for security professionals. Awesome, Pete. Uh, I mean, uh, if, if anyone's ever listened to some of the stuff we've done on HPR, I've, I've interviewed you before, so uh, like I say, I'm, I'm really happy to have got you on for TrackSec as well. Uh, I suppose we should start off with a pretty standard question for you. Um, how did you get into information security then? Well, yeah, that uh, I did say during the, the sort of warm-up to you that that mm. could take an hour. I'll really try and distill it down sensibly, um, but use the secret <laughs> code word if you need to stop me. Um, <laughs> I think the first piece of security work I did was uh, in the mid-'80s, working with um, early uh, Novell servers and configuring them uh, what we hoped was correctly, as you'd expect with any networking environment, there were a lot of settings, and most people just took it out of the box and used it. And we had uh, a few clients who had what they thought of as sensitive and important information, and they wanted to segregate areas of the server and 
improve the access controls and all that sort of stuff. So that was probably the, the first really hands-on security work that I did, and that was sort of mid, mid to late 80s. And then uh, I guess it was about 1993, 94, I, uh, I was asked by one of our big pharmaceutical clients to try and put together an IT security policy for them because they'd had a, um, a visitor on site as a contractor who um, accidentally, I guess, introduced a virus onto their networks. And their HR department told them that they couldn't do anything about it because they didn't have any rules about it. So they asked me to write a security policy, and I did that based on um, a document which the DTI, as it was then, had published, which subsequently became BS7799, which eventually became ISO 27000. So that was uh, about 93-94 when I really got into the, the, the widest span of information security rather than just IT security. I mean, how long have you how long have you been involved in, in ethical hacking then, Pete? Well, knowing you were going to ask me that question, T, there's a surprise for you. <laughs> um, I did a bit of research back on our archive server, and the first real, what I would describe as a proper ethical hacking test, we conducted in November 1996. I mean, you 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 said there what you. Um what you define as an ethical hacking, kind of. I mean, what, what in your mind is, wh how would you describe ethical hacking in your mind, in in your dictionary? Yeah, what a, what a lovely question. Everybody has a different view, don't they? Um, I see it as a, a, a combination of um, finding and then quite often, if you're doing the job properly, proving vulnerabilities in an organization's security profile. We're looking at the attack surface to see where they might be vulnerable. Um, I guess we're also looking at it from a context of what that organization does for a living, what sort of information it has, and therefore who the attackers might be to give a, uh, a view of risk against the vulnerabilities as well. Um, I know a lot of people will confuse maybe just vulnerability scanning with ethical hacking. In our view, it's not the same thing at all. Uh, an ethical hacker should be really, in our view, replicating a criminal attack as far as is possible while staying within the law and obviously without actually committing any damage to the systems and this, and this uh, sacrificial system. Okay, Koki, so really kind of like a like a black cup, but good. Yeah, painted white, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in, in your time involved in InfoSec, you know, because... Uh, and infosec and ethical hacking. I mean, what what do you think the biggest changes that you've seen in in your time anyway, Pete? Oh, an enormous, enormous change in terms of uh, breadth and methodology, probably, and uh, a, a very significant change, um, amazingly, in the responses from the clients as well. I mean, when we first started, and I look back through the first couple of years that we actually did. Um, real penetration testing and ethical hacking, and all the clients were in the finance sector. But uh, obviously that's changed. They were always going to be the early adopters being concerned about fraud and intrusion. Um, I think, you know, when we started, we were kind of making it up as we went along because uh, there wasn't a, a, a clear methodology published by anyone. There wasn't a, a, an official qualification in this sort of role. So we were kind of pioneering, and I, 
everybody calls the early days of the internet the wild west although some people will say it's still that way and i think you know we were the early sheriffs or trying to be or maybe the early pinkerton detectives anyway and um we were we were really making things up as we went along and ourselves and lots and lots of other people probably cleverer than ours out there have now i think put together a real framework that describes how to do it uh, what the objectives are and what sort of tools are useful and it's become a much more formalized process but hopefully without some of the creative elements being lost i was going to say you know in those early days when you were kind of like captaining the ship and, and guide and navigating your way through through this where were you taking inspiration from where were you saying well this is we you know we need to simulate how a hacker attacks this system where were you like going to find information and saying we really should look at this and we really should look at that i mean was there was there documentation that you were able to find that was able to assist you or was it just really sitting in a boardroom with a couple of you know a couple of your hackers and and basically thinking out of the box and saying, this is what we have to test? Well, um, we started looking at the products, first of all, that were being deployed as defensive measures, you know, looking at some of the early firewalls, how they worked, and reverse engineering in our minds why they were set up that way. We looked at um, a few small groups of of really clever people, like um, you'll remember ISS now been subsumed into IBM, but when we started, ISS was like half a dozen people. They were doing a lot of good security research, and we learned a lot from them. Um, we learned quite a bit from uh, from a number of small groups in, in, in larger organizations, too. Um, but in terms of methodology, you know, we, we really just kind of tried to try to think like a criminal and say to ourselves, you know, what would we do? if we wanted to break into this company or this system or this building. And, um, you know, the logical thing that we developed, we wrote our own methodology, and we were very, very positively, um, very positively influenced when we saw other methodologies emerging that were in the same same large framework, really, you know, the, the scoping out, the, the background research, the footprinting, followed by the the analysis of potential vulnerabilities and then the proving of those vulnerabilities. And, you know, that, that, that stepwise approach was founded on good engineering, good scientific principles. I, I, I was just about to I, I was just about to say the same thing there, Pete, that it's just, you know, you sound like you're describing being an engineer almost. Yeah, well, you know, I was, and I was trained to think that way. Um, I think a lot of hackers I know... Um, started by taking things to bits at home, you know, and the real hardware hacking. And then uh, we'll talk a little bit about later, perhaps, about some of the stuff I did um, in the early days of microcomputers and things like Commodore 64s and you know, reverse engineering software and stuff, which is quite interesting. And it's just a sort of inquisitiveness that drives that. But in terms of the, you know, the actual methodologies and processes, they were, yeah. You know, I remember thinking, how would I create the reports when I first started and I thought back to what I was taught in science classes at school and you know you would have like the objective of the experiment the method the results and the conclusion and apart from the fact that when we're presenting the results people don't like reading reports so we have to put the conclusions at the front rather than at the end it's remained in that <laughs> same structure <laughs> yes I, I'm, I'm sorry I'm, I'm laughing a bit there but 
having done data protection audits and clinical research audits, it's exactly the same. Uh, Pointy-haired boss wants a single page usually at the front with what's the bad news and good news. So, yes, it's a, a yeah, similar feeling. Single page, I think. double space. Yeah, I think yeah. double space. Yeah. No words longer than two syllables unless, uh, well, what we call poets <laughs> Yes, indeed. Yeah. Just, uh, just a, a left-field question for you, Pete. Um, you're saying hardware hacking and taking things apart. How many times have you been electrocuted then? <laughs> Absolutely lost count, really. Uh, I used to work as a bench engineer back in the uh, in the 80s, uh, late 70s, perhaps it was now. And um, I used to work on instrumentation equipment, you know, sort of lovely digital displays you get in uh, in old-fashioned measurement equipment. And trying to repair those, you have to have them switched on while you're working on them. And in those days, they took mainstream circuit boards. So. I used to get a jolt across the chest about once a day just to keep everything ticking over. <laughs> <laughs> I get sold off now for doing repairs to the house wiring without switching it off, apparently, as opposed to. <laughs> yeah, only only if you get it wrong, though. <laughs> and he's he's yeah, complaining exactly, about heating having blown. <laughs> yeah, well, we won't talk about that, but... <laughs> We had a count-up um, last week, by the way, just to stick this in for no apparent reason. Um, between the three of us in this household, we've got 15 computers here now. <laughs> so it's not going to be long until there's a, a first base cloud, Dan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pete, what do you um, think is probably the biggest asset that a potential white hat hacker could can possess? You know, what what's the the key asset? I think without question, I, 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 that came straight straight out of my pen when I thought about it this morning, and I think I've said it to you before, thinking outside the box, unquestionably. So many of the people we work with when we're providing testing services who are on the defending side don't. You know, they'll, they'll do what it says on the tin. They'll sometimes even <coughs> read the manual, but that's it. If there's a front door into a web application, you know, if it's, let's take something big and complex like SAP for accounting. If they want to spec out a test for that, they will assume that we're using the front end, the GUI front end provided by SAP. They'll assume that we'll be sitting only on the client machine using the interface provided for the user. Where, of course, you know and I know that we'll think, oh, hang on a minute, what ports are open on the server? How does it do the authentication? What's the What's the, the the data stream like on the wire? Is that unencrypted? Can I just plug in, look in, say, came over? So, you know, not not looking not looking at something in the way that the designer intended it, but looking at it with a much wider vision is, I think, the the key, the absolute key thing. I mean, to, to kind of talk about some of the other things as well. I mean, what are your thoughts on? You know the rise of ethical hacking-related degrees in the UK. Do you think that that's a, a good thing? And if so, you know, what do you think the, the positives that the, the industry can take out of, of having these I, degrees? There, I was, I was delighted. I mean, when when Colin first approached me and told me what he was doing, I was I was absolutely thrilled. I think I think it's the most positive thing we can see in terms of any form of formal training for this sort of role. I think it's critical. There's no question that almost every training course I've been on or have talked to people about, whether it's a commercial course or an academic course, um, 
does not put security at the top of the agenda, <coughs> if indeed it's there at all, and certainly doesn't teach the, the hacker way of thinking. So I'm delighted with it. I'm very excited by it. I mean, kind of the, the question's related to that one, you know, but... I mean, what what would you expect a hacking graduate to to possess in the way of a skill set by the time they actually finish the course? Well, I think there's, I can I can give you a top five things. That was what kind of rose to the to the surface when I asked myself that question. <clears throat> I think there will be a difference between what I expect to see and what I'd like to see, and that's not a cynical answer because you know someone in my position always thinks they know best. I mean, that's just life, isn't it? You know, when you've done something for a long time. You think you think you know the best things that are going to come out of it, but um, from from my point of view, what I what I'd like to see and what what I have seen because I've spent time talking to you and and to, to several other people from Abate is firstly the intuitive thinking outside the box mindset that just becomes part of your daily life, doesn't it? It becomes life hacking as well as ethical hacking. The second is discipline because. Um, when you're doing something that's exciting and stimulating, it's very easy to blow yourself off course, to go down a, a particular avenue and to, 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 to really just dig into something and forget to return back from subroutine, if you like, to the main thrust to carry on and do all the other components, even though they're not so interesting or maybe not going to give you the same rewards. So the discipline of making sure that you check everything, even though you found some really wazzo exciting stuff along the way. The third is patience because of course everybody that, that looks at this from the outside um, and particularly with the Hollywood spin or whatever that we see on, on, on hacking which is always quite hilarious um, is, is patience because you know and I know again that we're, we're, we're spending an awful lot of time panning for gold and having to have the discipline and the patience to keep going and, and looking for the nuggets when it really becomes quite dreary at times is is an important thing because of course when you get the gold nugget appear then it's it's even more exciting <coughs> fourthly um i would say a real low level understanding of the way that computers and networks work which i see absent in 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 so many it disciplines when we go on site and talk to clients and talk to the techies we find a dramatic difference from one person to the next, from one company to the next. Some people really understand the way that computers work and have a good internal visual model of, of what's going on. And others have a more sort of surface view, um, what I call point-and-click kiddies, and they don't really understand what's going on <laughs> under the surface. So, you know, we, when we're taking on a, a, a new person, the first thing we do is start at the bottom and work up of the computer, not the person. And so we're we're looking at um, you know network level protocols. We're looking at packet sniffing on the wire. We're talking about the way that the computer itself works internally, the way the operating system works. And I think if you've got that as a grounding, you can bolt almost anything IT-wise on top of it. And the same thing would be true of the low-level understanding of people when you're talking about the physical components of ethical hacking like social engineering and building entrance and that sort of stuff. Again, you need to understand how people work and how people think, otherwise you're just sort of shooting in the dark. And then lastly, and um, I might uh, might sound a bit trite, I apologise, but is ethics, because 
it is so easy to get carried away with a particular uh, a particular attack that you're mounting that it's very easy to cross the boundary between what was permitted within the scope of the engagement and what isn't. And I, unfortunately, we've had um, more than one person who we've met and spoken to and interviewed who's admitted to, to crossing that line and not really understanding the consequences of it. So I think the ethical part of it is, is really what differentiates us from anybody who's just interested in breaking stuff. The kind of the, that kind of springs some separate questions for me. Actually, I have to be honest with you. The the, the it's funny that you ended with with talking about mm. crossing the line because when you raised on discipline, you know what I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on was, you know what, you know you run a hacking company. What do you do when you have a hacker cross the line? Do you, how how is it that that not just you, but in your thoughts, how you handle that situation, because it can be it can be as innocent as as maybe not understanding that I wasn't allowed to port scan that system. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, the laws are the laws. You can only do what you're permitted to do, and so on and so forth. How do we handle errors in judgment? Do we do we push people out of the industry and say you've burnt you, you've burnt your bridges? That's it. You've made a mistake. You can't come back. Or do we have some form of of, of monitoring and 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 re- almost education? I mean, what 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 are your thoughts on that, Pete? I'll give you two examples of things that have happened, and that might put it into into context for you. Firstly, I'm not a a draconian-minded person. I'm I'm the last person to say I've never made a mistake because we all do. Whether the mistake is due to getting overexcited about something or just not thinking clearly, or even just a typo. Um, everyone can make mistakes. I think what matters is is to learn from those mistakes, and what matters is to appreciate the reason that perhaps the, the guidance is there if it's well written. So the first example is testing the wrong IP range, and everybody in penetration testing will have done this, whether they admit to it or not. <coughs> we, 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 for example, if we engage with a client, we require them to complete a consent form that includes a list of, if we're just looking at external IPs, say, a list of those IPs and uh, sometimes what devices they are depends on the sort of engagement, but a list of IP addresses. Now, if they themselves make a typo on that uh, on that consent form, then, of course, there's a possibility that we could end up testing the wrong people. And we've had two examples where this happened, which we learned from as a team in the early days. The first was a range of telephone numbers to Wardile, and um, they gave us a, uh, the client in question gave us a, a range of numbers, which started with like a thousand for the switchboard and went up for direct dial numbers, and they made a typo in the higher range, so we ended up running an automated um, Wardile exercise that exceeded the client's telephone range and went into some other uh, some other business which was. Um, in the same building, and it was a you know one of these rented buildings where they have a common switchboard, and that was one experience that we had. The other was uh, a range of IP addresses where one of the one of the octets was transposed around, and we ended up testing somewhere in Romania by mistake, which was quite interesting. Um, there didn't seem to be any comeback, fortunately. 
So as far as you know. Yes, yeah, well, it, uh, that, that may be why my gas is cut off, I don't know. But it was a long time ago, so their payback is like seven years late or something. But um, what We, we did talk about patience, Pete. <laughs> yeah, right, good point, mate. Um, so what, what we did as a result of that was to change the process to, first of all, um, when one pen tester is asked to test a range of IPs, somewhat another person, member of the team, has to just check that what they put into their into their uh, into their tools is the same as what was on the paper. And the other thing we do is, that, which is quite obvious now, of course, but we didn't think of it in the early days, was to simply do <coughs> domain lookup and who is is to make sure that it appears to be owned by the right people. Um, but you know, when that happened, the person who did the test was in no sense punished or reprimanded because, in my view, it was our processes that were wrong. We didn't have a checking process in place, and as the employer, it was my mistake, not theirs. Um, if we have that process in place and they don't follow it, then they would be reprimanded. How they would be reprimanded would, would depend very much on the severity of the situation. Um, obviously, if they're, if they're being careless, again, that can happen to anybody after a rough night or something like that. But, you know, if if it's a simple port scan, then they would be told off and told not to do it again. If it was something more serious, then in the worst possible case where we've had somebody who had the rules explained to them very clearly, it wasn't an employee, actually, it was someone working under contract for us. But we explained the scope of the job very clearly. They have a copy of the scope that the client has signed, and they deliberately exceeded it for, for probably the best reasons. But I hope that's not them hacking into the line there. Yeah, um, they, uh, they they deliberately exceeded it. They thought for a good reason. They felt that our scope wasn't adequate and that that it needed some additional testing. As a result, they brought a, a, a quite an important system down for about an hour, which um, the net result was it cost us as a firm about seven thousand pounds in fees we couldn't charge, and we were very lucky that that was as far as the client took it, because of course they could have gone for consequential loss as well. And because that person was a third party, um, we had to we had to agree with the client, or the client required us to never use that person again, and we had to discontinue the relationship with them. And I'm not sure that was, you know, entirely fair because they were doing it for the right reasons, but um, you know, commercially we didn't have any choice. If it had been an employee, then um, in the same situation, um, if it were not their first first mistake of that nature, we would probably have to let them go. Okay. Uh, I, I presume that was Chris jumping onto the call there. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's sorry, I'm a little bit late, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and you were saying that timekeeping is important in ethical hacking as well, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't say that. I was five minutes late, man. <laughs> you gave the game away, Pete. That's just not on. <laughs> Sorry, that's my people's side. <laughs> um, uh, we're, we're, that's Chris joining on, everyone, by the way. How are you doing, Chris? Are you okay? Hi, Chris. Yeah, uh, hi, hi, guys. Yeah, sorry, it's uh, been one of those days. <laughs> <laughs> You've not um, been port by Romania, oh, by any chance. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry to interject, sorry but... Um, could, could I... Uh, um, Having suffered from the other side of somebody exceeding the bounds of what they were asked to do, um, yep. I do actually understand why that company would say to you, don't use that contractor ever again, because it 
it, um, it, particularly if you were paying for the service as well, it, it would fill you with, with distrust. In fact, I, I had one question, which is, um, well, it's related to your heating, really, I suppose. But, uh, you, you know, if you have something fairly dangerous done, like having your gas fixed, you look for corgi registration. I just wondered, is there something similar, as we're talking about qualifications, is there something similar for ethical hacking that I, as someone who's going to hire a hacker or, or, or a company that does it, um, can look for a stamp of approval or, or certification or, or a charter, as it were? Is there something available like yeah, that? I wish. I think we're, 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 we will get there. Um, I'm involved um, with the Institute of Information Security Professionals. I'm involved mm-hmm. as a as a fellow in the BCS and a member of their security consultants register and lots and lots of other organisations and a lot of those organisations are pushing towards some sort of um, some sort of equivalent to the Corgi qualification. I think the problem is, you see, that um, if you typically your average heating engineer, if he's technically competent and enjoys his job is not going to exceed the scope of what he does because the boiler could blow up and yes. he could kill people. Um, that's, you know, in terms of his technical skills, that's easy to measure. And, of course, we could put something similar in place, and there are things in place that could measure the technical skills of a penetration tester. That doesn't <clears> tell you whether they'll exceed scope or not. Because Well, no, no. I mean, really, that that's my concern. I think the, the, the mm. scope, the ethical side, in well, fact... Yeah, I, I think there won't be a uh, there won't be an ethical hacking firm in the world that hasn't had some employee do something out of scope at some time. It's how they respond to it, how honest they are about it, and um, you know how they prevent it recurring that matters in my view. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we we've been doing we've we've been in business for 20 years now. We've been doing technical, remote and local penetration testing and ethical hacking since 1996, according to my records. So that's quite a long time. And in that whole time, um, we've only had one occasion where something took place that caused a system outage. Now, that happened because I think I made a mistake in trusting the background and qualification of the individual that we were using who was a third party who was self-employed. He was more than technically competent but we hadn't inducted him because he wasn't a member of staff into our way of thinking and our business process. We run a a very small business here. There's only um, seven or eight employees at any time at the moment, and everybody works very closely together. We don't have, you know, a division of function, really. Everybody is a techie, and everybody understands that, that, that the scope is critical to not only behaving ethically but to the future of the business. So and therefore to their careers. So um, what I'd done wrong, I think, was to assume that I could use a third party and they would have the same tight constraints around their behaviours and that they mm-hmm. wouldn't think mm-hmm. that they knew better than the people who wrote the scope. And that I know better mindset doesn't work in, in our firm, doesn't work in first space. The rules are the no, rules. You, and if you, if you, you should also... You, that, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Karen. No, I was just going to say. I mean, I, I see your point that that people kind of you know go beyond the the scope, and you're talking about how testers can kind of go outside of the scope and continue to test things maybe they shouldn't be. Um, as a tester myself, 
I've come across the opposite where you test something where the client specifically said this is what you should be testing only to find out halfway through this isn't what you should be testing. Um, you know, where the person who you think is technically competent at the client doesn't realize mm. that the IP address he's giving you appears to be the productive system instead of a test network. So yeah, well, they can also have to double check for that. Yeah, we, I mean, whilst we could say, well, that's stuff like we don't, um, we, we spend a lot of time with the client when we get on site, if we're doing on site work, for example, to ensure that it is what they think it is. We, we you know, we have, we have something we call um, a pre quite questionnaire before we even raise a proposal to the client that asks them uh, a lot of detailed questions about what they, don't, what they want done, when, where, and to what. And for example, when you're talking about whether a system is a production system or whether it's a test system or a development system, all of that is asked at the time. And when we get, if we're going on site, which is where the most damage can occur, then we double check when we're on site as well. And we will usually be introduced as system owner and we'll check with them. So we do everything we can and so far, um, you know, I don't know how many tests we've run, I couldn't count it, but, you know, we run something like three to four web application tests a week. We run something like three or four on-site big network tests a month. So we're doing a lot of work against a lot of systems, and we've learned over the years how to avoid mistakes because that's what it usually is. It's, uh, it's either, you know, if it's, if it's on the client side, there will always be the possibility of mistakes. So we look for, you know, a, a sort of internal sense in what they provide us with. If they've given us a bunch of IP addresses and one of them looks wildly different, we'll check it. If they've given us a, a number of named posts in a domain and one of them appears to be in another domain, we'll check it. If we do a network discovery exercise and find lots of subnets that they didn't mention, we take it to them and say, are these in scope or not before we go any further? If the scope changes, they have to sign it and say it's okay. So we, we do try and encourage them to think about what we're actually going to be doing as well as us thinking about it. And that, yes, I mean, uh, I think, sorry. Know, uh, when our clients ask us this sort of question, they do a lot. My answer is, you know, you can come and inspect our processes, you can talk to the people who will be doing the job, and you can certainly talk to our other clients who we've worked with in some cases for a dozen years who know that we try and do the job in a, in a responsible and, and, and ethical way. And I don't think you can do more than that. It becomes uh, a person-to-person -person relationship because you know, is such a, a, a variable subject. It's, it's no different, really, than someone repairing your boiler or maintaining your aircraft or something else, except that it doesn't cause loss of life, at least apparently and in most cases. But we take it as seriously as that, and we encourage the client to do so as well. So we think it's, it's about, you know, the guys doing the job, forming the relationship with the client and making sure that they are all on the same page. Yeah, uh, and I suppose the, the client, in a lot of ways, has a responsibility to make sure you're not working on a live system to a certain extent. Because, I mean, in terms of something like the DP Act, you could be being exposed to sensitive personal information that you shouldn't be being exposed to as well if they put you on a live system, as it were. Yeah, well, that's why we go, you know, we're, we're security cleared. We, we always have a, a, an NDA in place with the client um, and lots of other things that, that we believe provide them with a feeling of comfort. In the end, like, a, like anyone in this situation, we have to be trusted. And, you know, we work on, on sensitive systems um, up to government mark restricted and sometimes secret and, you know, things that, that, that are perceived to be important and sensitive. And, you know, in the end, you have to trust the people doing the work. 
there are, and we do conduct, background tests, checks that, that, that make sure as best we can, in the same way as government does, that the people that are doing the work are you know, of an ethical nature and have the right, uh, the right approach. And you know, we're in a very small team. It, it becomes relatively, relatively certain that people are what they say they are. Um, and that uh, <coughs> if they do get exposed to data like that, that they act, act responsibly with it because it does happen. Bob had a great question about this when he was talking to me earlier on about the, you know NDAs and and the Data Protection Act and and how yeah. um, and, and uh, you're probably the best person to ask it how you know at the end of the day you can have NDAs and you can say you know you're not supposed to look at this and you know you you can act responsibly. But under you know under the Data Protection Act, if by law you're not allowed to view a bank's sensitive data, I mean do do, you, do I mean yeah. Bob, you're probably that's the better person right. to ask this question. Well, well, yeah, yeah. Um, well, really, yes. I mean, um, it is all. I mean, we do audits as well as a company. You know, we do clinical research audits with the pharma company, pharmaceutical companies, and so on. And we have the same sort of issues there in that we can accidentally be exposed to a patient record, which, which for a start they should maybe shouldn't have, but we as auditors shouldn't see. And it, it it is awkward, really, in that the DP Act is the law, and and as Aaron was implying that, and as obviously you're well aware anyway, an NDA doesn't protect you either. That's really why I was asking that, because I've seen a number of contracts that we've dealt with that never even mention the DP Act as if it doesn't exist. Now, I also saw a template for, in fact, it was for ethical hacking testing. It wasn't, wasn't a UK one, I think it was a Dutch one. And that made no mention of the Database Protection Act or, or the, the various EU directives that related to it, really. Um, I've, never seen, my I've concern, never seen an NDA that does. No, in, indeed. And, and it's a, I, I find it a little... Um, we usually remind the client of it, particularly as it looks like this coming April, that's 2010, um, the UK <laughs> Information Commissioner may get the ability to fine companies up to half a million pounds for exposing data, for losing or exposing data to people. And Re I, I wondered, yeah. recklessly, yes, I, I mean, that is an important word. And I, I did wonder whether you feel that might have an effect on whether or not companies pull you in, because if you find something that they are, in effect, exposing data and you bring that up, um, you know, do you think that's going to have an impact upon your business? Are we going to have to wait for the first case that comes up in front of the ICO? Um, have you any opinions yeah. on that? Yeah, lots. Um, <laughs> I don't. I, I, it might be eventually that that someone somewhere will take notice of it. Um, all I can yeah. say is that the vetting of our staff, the constant monitoring of our staff, and the physical and technical controls we put around any data even if it's temporarily in our custody on site, which includes full disk encryption, encrypted USB sticks, and no, not the sort that we might have heard about recently, um, <laughs> then um, we're actually taking better care of that data than most clients that we, we interface with. Yes, Secondly, that sounds familiar um, too. Yeah. If, if, if we're working for government and dealing with data that falls under the Data Protection Act and falls under the Official Secrets Act, in their view, us being security cleared is sufficient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Again, really, it com I suppose it comes back to if, if as a company or, or an individual you are, you are going to look to hire an ethical um, penetration or hacking company, mm. these are the sort of things you really need to, again, akin to our, my own field, I suppose, 
you have to audit them first before you even hire them or at least see that they have standard operating procedures, qualifications, methodologies. So. They speak the right language. Yeah, Again, you, you've yeah, got to go for... We are enormously anal about stuff like that. We, we, we're we're mm-hmm. lucky enough to have you know one of the partners here who's enormously picky about stuff like that. She's created the most the most um, detailed and, and draconian processes and procedures to protect information and to protect us and our clients as businesses. And mm-hmm. um, in my view, I think it's as good or better than most. And um, not wishing to keep playing the same tune, but you know the fact that we are vetted by UK government to SC, the fact that we sign up to the BCS code of conduct and to well numerous other organisations codes of conduct and um, I would say you know that as a business um, we understand all too clearly that were there to be any form of data leakage information loss or whatever it's not only um, obviously unacceptable as far as the clients I would expect us to be out of business immediately if we were to have that happen to us so we take it enormously, enormously seriously. And mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, um, many clients will take uh, a pen testing company on without making consideration of those sorts of those sorts of issues. We do see very few clients who actually ask for evidence of the processes and procedures which we do in fact have. Um, but nevertheless, we, we set the bar as high as we can for ourselves. And in that sense, I'd say again, without question, that we protect data belonging to the client while it's in our possession in pretty much every case better than they protect it themselves. That that sounds quite familiar as well. From <laughs> at least it's not it's not unique to your trade. If you follow me, I think it's anything to do with auditing. No, absolutely not. Perhaps approach as well. Could I ask one more question? This is with my developer's hat on, if you like, um, and really it's a pen t- testing question. Do do you find um, if if you've done pen testing and, and and so on on a particular application, or whatever, that the developer's ego gets in the way of um, perhaps using your results properly at all? Or we encounter that a lot. Um, less so recently, I'm pleased to say. Um, one of the mechanisms we've put in place to try and counter that, especially where frequently either. The developer is a separate organisation that's been hired in by the by the client, or if it's a, a distinct department within the client, um, we, as far as we can, insist on um, a teleconference once we've submitted the report, where we go through the findings, both with both the client who engaged as present and the developers, so that um, if there is. Uh, um, a response that says, well, we don't believe that's important or, you know, I don't believe that's a real risk and so on, we will debate it through with them. And um, we also provide a a retest for things like web applications where we revisit the application typically a couple of months after the first test and look explicitly at the vulnerabilities we found to see whether the organisation has remediated them properly or not. Yeah, I come across it quite a lot when you're doing rechecks and, and you come back to it and the, the, the developer or the, the company that's created the product says, yes, yes, it's all been fixed, it's all been fixed. You come back to it and all they've basically done is taken your proof of concept code from your report and made it so it doesn't work. 
you know, by changing you know two two characters or or you're using another function, suddenly it does exactly the same thing, and they haven't really patched the problem. They've just patched the example, and sometimes companies think that that's all they need to do to to make things better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've, I've seen I've seen examples of that. Not commonly, interestingly. Um, <clears throat> most of our clients are large corporates, and when they do get involved in this, they get involved in it reasonably seriously. So um, we tend to be engaged by people who know what they're buying. Um, it's been a, a just to add a light note into this. It's been my policy, if you like, since I founded the firm, that um, if when the client interacts with us we have to explain to them what an IP address is, we won't do business with them. <laughs> and that's quite, you know, it's amusing, but it's true. It's, it's, we explicitly <laughs> chose them to only do business with clients to engage with us who understand what they're buying and who can understand our reports and interpret them properly. I don't want to go um, recruiting a whole bunch of people who convert um, legitimate technical findings into some watered-down nonsense. So when when we're doing these sorts of tests, I mean, talking about web application tests explicitly, as, as you raised it, um, most of our testing is now manual. Increasingly over the years, we've switched from any form of automated testing, apart from things like spidering and crawling, to, to manual testing for exactly these reasons. Because um, if we find an example of, let's say, cross-site scripting, which we will, on, on on some pages. We'll use those as examples. We will not only use different um, cross-site scripting proof-of-concept techniques, um, both at the time of testing and at the time of retest, but also, of course, we'll look not only in the pages where we found it initially, but in other pages to cross-check that the, the problem's been fixed generically rather than specifically. Right. I'm just so going to have to interject just for a second. Uh, I'm literally running to my uh, ethical hacking class now, so thank you very much, Pete. And uh, if uh, if I've got any questions later on, uh, I'll send you an email. Okay. Thank you very much. See you later, guys. See you later, Dom. Um, Pete, I've I've got a couple of quick questions, and uh, I'm conscious that that we've monopolised a, a large chunk of your time so far. I mean, what do you? Do you look for for candidates when you know fulfilling vacancies? What sort of the thing that that you're you're looking from from your potential ethical hackers? Well, I thought of this actually yesterday because I was helping with an interview yesterday. I, I came up with four things that, that that are important to me. I think different people look for different things, but these four would probably appear in most people's lists. Firstly, an understanding of ethics, because even if they've misinterpreted an ethical stance in some examples they may quote or get asked about. If they have a fundamental understanding of wanting to do the right thing, I think they can be they can be uh, trained or educated for the right approach. So firstly, uh, a core ethical mindset. We don't want vigilantes. <clears throat> Secondly, creativity. And that really is another way of saying that, thinking outside the box thing again. Someone who can demonstrate uh, a creative approach to to problem solving or problem making. Thirdly, um, thirdly, a sense of humour, because I think if people take themselves too seriously to the point of having no sense of humour at all, they're probably not going to work with the rest of our team. And fourthly, and it's not in order, in order of importance, it's fourthly, enthusiasm or passion. I don't want someone who's just doing it for a job. It's got to be a career or a vocation. 
Yeah, I, I made the mistake of asking uh, TrackSec listeners uh, what they thought was the their minimum qualification, uh, and I was meaning professional qualification, um, that people thought you needed to be an ethical hacker penetration tester. And Chris will tell you as well that the huge chunk of every answer that I got from everyone on Twitter was in some way connected to with passion, enthusiasm, and, and, and commitment. Do you know what I mean? And Chris, yeah. I mean, Chris, you had the, the, the great point to say that that's without doubt that's absolutely true, but it's not really what HR is looking for. Um, <laughs> so we don't have problem. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm actually seeing quite a lot of technical companies that really are hiring really technical people don't don't involve HR in the process. Um, I know specifically there's companies out there that will, you know, that use social media and interact quite a lot with people in the industry. And if they're looking for someone, they will purely look through social media. You know, Twitter specifically, you know, things like if someone says they're looking for a job, you can pretty much see that there's there's companies on there that really do highly technical work that are approaching them through Twitter, through social media, or just at conferences and really going directly to the people who they want to hire instead of, advertising a position and getting inundated with CVs for people who've just done a certified ethical hacker course for the city council and think they're God's gift. Um, mm. I mean, the answers you, you got on Twitter were mostly, you know, enthusiasm and the right thought process. Everything else you can learn. You know, everything else you can be taught. I mean, I'd rather, I'd rather almost hire someone who wants to learn and has a lust for, for knowledge and can think slightly differently than, than your average developer and then just teach them everything from that point. It's kind of almost easier. Yeah, I agree completely. We've never actually recruited anybody who is a, a trained penetration tester or ethical hacker. It's never happened. <laughs> well, I won't send um, you my CP then. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't say it wouldn't happen. Chris, if you've done plumbing yeah. and central heating in your spare time, you're guaranteed a job. That's right, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the only problem is all those evenings slaving away in my garage. <laughs> what's your uh, what's your advice, Pete, for people actually getting into hacking? You know, into infosec and penetration testing. Uh, I mean, what what do you think the the route? Well, the route actually is like. To use your phrase, a left field answer to that. I think first of all, do it because you love it, and secondly, don't become a vigilante to prove it. And I don't think that um, you know if you go through a traditional job filtering system, you know, to a, a recruitment agency or to a large firm, then I'm sure all the guidance would be different. I ain't never been a large firm, uh, don't want to be, and the way we recruit um, primarily is people write to us and say, I'm interested in doing this, have you got any jobs, Gov? And we will filter out, you know, those that, that don't fit the profile or or, or can't string a sentence together or whatever because, you know, communication is a critical part of the commercial model for us. But um, in the end, I think, if someone's very keen to do it, has um, a, a real passion for it, and has um, the ability to, to learn technical issues, uh, I think that's all we really need. I mean, we we have on our team um, an ex-carpenter, um, uh, someone who... Uh, it was halfway through a, a degree in uh, chemistry and then got a job changing watch batteries. Um, someone who used to sell paper, um, which you can do apparently. Um, <laughs> and but someone who used to be uh, a self-employed accountant. You know, th th it's not 
in our view, um, necessarily about uh, having a traditional route, although it's easy for a small company to talk like this and not so easy for someone um, to approach a, a large firm uh, with with the you know what they perceive to be the wrong skill set. But I talked to somebody yesterday who was he's got a, a first class honours degree and won a BCS award for for what he did at university, but was turned down by a recruitment company because he didn't have the right A levels. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that you know that's the epitome of stupidity. And if we get to recruit him because they turned him down, then I'll be very pleased. Um, but you know, it's. It, it, I, I think you know you have to decide where you want to work, and fit the the profile for the employer. Probably, however daft that sounds. If you want to work for a really big organisation, I'm sure that their HR people will have a set of rules and a checklist that will control whether you even get to interview. In, in smaller firms, and fortunately, a lot of ethical hacking and pen testing firms are smaller firms then I think you've got a much better chance of, of, of getting it because of who you are rather than what you can write on a bit of paper. So I suppose we, we kind of know the answer to this question, but it's a very, I, I emailed it to you, and it's, it's, a, it's a strange question to ask, but degree versus professional qualifications versus self-taught. I mean, which, which, which of those three options uh, do you, I, I, I have a sneaky feeling I know what your answer here is going to be, but you know, which is mm. which to you do you think is, is the best? I mean, for me, I think the self-taught that. hacker shows that, that, that you know, if they can, if they've got demonstrable proof of of how well they've self-taught themselves, is is a good indicator of how they'll act within within hacking. Yes, I, I agree. It, it is. A, yeah, it answers. You're right, mate. It answers a lot of questions in 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 one. You're right. Um, I used to be much more um, fascist about this answer than I am now. Interestingly, um, and some of it is since I met you and some of your colleagues and also spent time at more than one university um, looking at the way that these um, BSCs and MSCs are put together and I've got a lot more respect for them than I used to have, I really have. Um, we've got two people on staff who've done MSC and in information security and it's given them an excellent breadth of knowledge which is useful with our, with our client base, bearing in mind we're mainly dealing with large corporates and government. Um, those that have taken it seriously and done some really interesting work, particularly as part of their thesis or whatever, um, have really demonstrated a number of factors to us as potential employers in terms of you know, being able to have the discipline, being able to have the technical insight to really get into a topic, and that, that, you know, in our case, the English, uh, to, to actually put it down on paper in a comprehensible way and, uh, and present it comprehensively. So I think there's a lot to be said for that myself now. Yeah, that that was something I was going to to mention. Actually, being able to report it properly, um, sometimes oh, yeah. you get something I, I mean, that's almost unreadable. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah, we 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 couldn't tolerate that. I am such a grammar fascist. I'm awful, honestly. I can see double white spaces. It's a nightmare working for me. So we have a both a technical review and a, um, an English readability QA review for every report before it goes out, which is very expensive for us, but it gives us a report that's usually right. Um, but anybody who who does that role in our firm has to be able to write the report as well. And although we have a lot of standard wording that people can pick and choose from to try and make things consistent and, and uh, sensible in reporting, if they can't use English properly, they're really not going to be able to do the job properly. There's no question about that. 
Um, probably the guy I've got the most respect for there is one of our guys who's Indian by birth and whose English is his second language, and he does a great job at that. Very impressive. Um, regarding um, professional or industry qualifications, I think it depends what. Um, I probably don't have sufficient experience to talk really knowledgeably about it, um, to be fair. Um, I, despite everybody taking the mickey out of it, I think being able to get a CISSP demonstrates a reasonable breadth of knowledge, even if it is only three inches thick. And I think that that's quite useful because it does mean that you've got some idea about things like risk analysis and um, physical security and personnel security as well as the technical elements, and I think that's important. So I, I, believe it or not, I quite like that. Um, of course, someone who's able to just read a book and then answer a load of tick boxes may uh, may not be the right output person from that sort of thing, but it's an indicator. But self-taught, yeah, it tells us two things. It tells us, firstly, if they're able to, to do the job in in the way that we've talked about already, the, the thinking outside the box, the able to absorb interesting technical data and actually implement it. But it also tells us instantly about their ethical stance because if they're self-taught, what did they teach themselves on? And if they taught themselves on other people's sites, they ain't, they're going straight back out the door again. <laughs> <laughs> but if they set up their own lab and set up some nice, interesting virtual machines, and then then big kudos. Going to try and wrap up as soon as possible for you. And I, I suppose I have I have four questions, and I'll try and make them quick. The 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 one is you know. One about, and I think we already know the answer, but you know, how important is it for ethical hackers to be able to operate in a client's environment? And I mean, in that way that that you can you can trust that that ethical hacker not to burn the bridge with that client or lose that business. I mean, how well, important? Well, again, yeah, because because most penetration testing firms are small, and even the penetration testing teams in in the big four are very small. It's critical that, that, that they can behave ethically and they can communicate intelligently with the client. And um, we have a, a rule that says when someone starts with us, they do remote testing only to begin with. Um, and only when we're satisfied that they can do that well do we then move to taking them on site in a monitored way with an experienced person. And only when they've done that and proved their ability to interface with the client face-to-face as well as do the technical job would they be allowed to do it on their own. If, if you know, the, the, the ability to write plain English, the ability to communicate clearly and dispassionately by phone and the ability to talk pleasantly face-to-face are an essential part of doing this uh, in a commercial environment. I'm sure if you work inside GCHQ, it doesn't matter a damn, but if you're working in a commercial environment, you've got to be able to operate with, in, in a business environment and only, and only go and tear your hair out, scream, shout, and have a good laugh when you're in the car park, not by the building. Oh, and um, yelling, yes, when you've broken into someone's system isn't best practice. <laughs> <laughs> Although everybody's done it. <laughs> Surely you're allowed to do a happy dance of some kind. <laughs> well, uh, you know, the, the NFL stopped us. You remember when the NFL stopped them doing those enzyme dances? I'm a big fan of American football. And they used to do some great dances when they scored a touchdown, and the NFL said it was an unnecessary waste of time. And, um, no, I think I think you know you just got to find the right place to do it. It may need just to pop out to the toilet and have a little dance around in there. Although I did get caught out like that once, and that's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> that 
that might that might lead on to a very nice end question. I must admit. Would you? I mean, this is the fluffy question that I suppose you would expect a security podcaster to ask someone in the security industry. What do you think the biggest threat is that that we're facing over the next twelve months? To business and to society's Trojans. Oh yes, well, <laughs> they're they're, really, they're maturing very you. fast. Yeah, some of the really, I mean, there are some weirdly clever people writing these things, weirdly clever. And there's some very bloody clever people I've met who, who try and defend against these and take them to bits in all kinds of roles in government and industry. But I I think, you know, given the, the broad brush ignorance of the normal person, that's not us and not our listeners, but the normal person out there hasn't the faintest idea what it means. And they are just, you know, and they think antivirus is a solution. They are so screwed. <laughs> they're safe because they're behind a firewall. Well, yeah, that, yeah, firewall, antivirus, very nice, big tick, go home. Oh dear. <laughs> the one, the one I like is the, uh, but, but I only go to sites that I trust. Um, <laughs> of course, because <laughs> sites like the New York Stock Exchange and things like that have never been hacked, so you couldn't possibly get yeah, an infection Google, from one of those. Google, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Microsoft. <laughs> God, I'm glad I brought a big packet of cigarettes for this interview. <laughs> what do you, uh, Pete? What I mean, in the same vein, what's been the most worrying incident that you've seen in your professional career? If you can talk about it, of course. Yeah, well, I can because it's, it happens a lot of places. It's a lack of security culture. The fact that that, that people think that buying sexy boxes with blue flashing lights on and having great security gates on the main entrance will give them security the staff don't know, they haven't been told they try to do the right thing they still let you in the back door when you turn up with a cigarette in your hand or a phone in your hand um, There's the, the complete lack of security culture in most organisations will will be their downfall if the Chinese really take it seriously um. For people who are wanting to find out more information about you, um, you run a blog, is that correct? Yeah, I do. Um, you can go to peterwood.com, which will link to the blog, and you can also find out a little about, about my background on peterwood.com. The blog itself is uh, FPWS for Famous Pete Wood Security. Blogspot, I think, or somebody like that. Um, we'll put you, we'll uh, put a link in the show notes in that. Yeah, but the, the background's on peterwood.com, and... Uh, and the occasional commentaries on FBWS. Okay, cool, okay. Um, all that's left for me to do now is thank you once again, Pete, for, for joining us on TrackSec. Uh, and is there anything else you want to pass on to the audience before you shoot off? I uh, just want to say many, many thanks for having me, Aaron. You really are one of the good guys. And um, <laughs> keep listening, guys. Keep listening. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Pete. Thank you for listening to Hacker Public Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.